Well, welcome to the city. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here, if we hadn't had a chance to, uh, to meet yet. And man, I am so, so excited to be here in our new building, our, our permanent home. And I know for a lot of you, this is your first chance to, to kind of get a, a glimpse of it. And like Clayton said last week, God did so much just getting us to this point. Like, I am so, so excited uh, to look to the future and just hopeful for what God is going to do in and through this place in the, in the future. Um, and I hope you are too. And uh, now I'd like to talk about cartoons for a second. Um, have you ever heard the phrase uh, classic Cinderella story? You've heard that, right? Cinderella story. You hear it a lot in sports. Like uh, over and over, you'll, you'll hear it like um, the Miracle on Ice. Uh, you, you have Rudy. You have March Madness every year. You know, there's a team that's a 14, 15, 16 seed that ends up winning some games somehow, and they, they might make it to the Sweet 16, and that's all anyone ever talks about. And if you're not a sports fan, you have no idea what I'm talking about right now. But it's basically that, that classic underdog story, the improbable comeback. The, sometimes it just seems like an impossible situation. And, and it obviously comes from the movie Cinderella. That, that, that classic storyline, the classic plot that we, we all love, almost all the Disney movies, the classic ones anyway, ha have this, this theme. You have two kinds of people. You have some very, very evil people, and you have some good people. And in this case, you have young Cinderella who has a, a servant's heart, and she's just loving and diligent and, and faithful and submissive even to the wicked stepsisters and the wicked stepmother. And she endures their abuse. And there's this, this tension it creates, right? That you see her mistreated and you're like, this isn't right. Like, how much longer can this go on? And, and, and you find yourself kind of starting to wish someone would show up to put things in order, to, to make things right. That he would take the, this girl and, and raise her up and, and put on the, the glass slipper. What we're all waiting for in, in that moment, in this kind of story, what we're longing for is the authoritative son of the king, the prince. This is what makes for, for a great story, just the, the tension where it seems like evil is going to win and it's never going to be right again, and just waiting for someone with authority to, to come in and save the day. And today we'll see this concept kind of play out on the pages of history, in scripture, in God's story, where it seems like evil is winning, and the authoritative son of the king steps in to make things right. And just to kind of catch you up, if you're new here, if you've been gone for a little while, we've been in Luke for a long time. We're in chapter 20 now, but in recent weeks, we've been looking at uh, Holy Week. So you had Sunday when, when Jesus rode in on the donkey with the palm branches and everything else. This was Palm Sunday, donkey day, as Clayton liked to call it. Uh, Monday, he walks into the temple where he's confronted by these religious leaders. And they're asking him, you know, what gives you the authority? Like, where does your authority come from? Like, what gives you the right? By what authority are you even speaking? And he makes it clear to them that his authority comes from God and that they don't have authority over him. But now we're at a Tuesday afternoon. Tuesday afternoon, Jesus is publicly teaching in the temple for the very last time as a free man. So, so this is... is his manifesto, they're, they're his closing arguments. And it's the very last of the beatdowns that he's going to give to these religious leaders. We're going to see him assert his authority today. We're going to see them try to trap him. 
but we'll see him answer them with, with no hesitation, with no error, and prove once and for all where his authority comes from. And then, like the prince in Cinderella, he's going to renounce the evil that, that has seemed to have gone on and on and on unchecked. He's going to condemn it, and then he's going to exalt Cinderella. In this case, a Jewish woman who didn't have a lot, but who loved God with all of her heart, mind, soul, and strength. And she serves to this day to, to show us what true righteousness and devotion to God looks like. As Clayton said last week, Tuesday, there, there's a lot that happens, like a lot. And we're going to cover most of it today, okay? So, so we, we have a, a long way to go. This might be the most verses ever that anyone's ever preached about ever in the history of the world. I, I, obviously, I've done something to offend Clayton, but we'll, we'll work it out. There's basically four different sections that I'm going to attempt to kind of tie together, and, uh, but, but let's, let's uh, buckle up and dive in. As my late uh, English teacher from Sundown High School, Miss McConnell, used to say, just when we thought we were finished with our work, she would say, miles to go before we rest, and we would all roll our eyes, right, and groan, miles to go before we rest, but don't roll your eyes, it might hurt my feelings, so... Um, just a little background here. We're gonna, we've talked a lot about these religious leaders. You have Pharisees and chief priests and scribes who are also called teachers of the religious law. And then you've got Sadducees. And they're, they're all different groups that actually didn't agree on a whole lot. <laughs> okay, like they, they, they believed different things. They didn't get, get along very well. But they were united in one thing. And that's their hatred of Jesus. Like he was such a threat to them that they, they kind of are combining forces to try to stop him. And you, you remember you had last week, Jesus was telling the story about the, the wicked farmers, and he tells them directly, you are the wicked farmer, and they're furious. Just backing up one verse 19, it says, the leading priests wanted to arrest Jesus immediately because they were so mad. So some translations say they wanted to put their hands on him, but they were afraid of people's reaction, so they decided to trap him instead. So we'll be in Luke chapter 20, verse 20, if you have your Bibles. If not, they'll be on the screen, of course, but um, the app has a, a message notes tab that's a great way to stay connected. It has all the points there for you and all the verses. So let's, uh, let's read together. Would you guys stand in the honor of reading of God's word? And we'll start in verse 20. It says, watching for their opportunity, the leaders sent spies pretending to be honest men. They tried to get Jesus to say something that could be reported to the Roman governor so he would arrest Jesus. Teacher, they said. We know that you speak and teach what is right and are not influenced by what others think. You teach the way of God truthfully. Now tell us, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their trickery and said, show me a Roman coin. Whose picture and title are stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. Well then, he said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. So they failed to trap him by what he said in front of the people. Instead, they were amazed by his answer, and they became silent. You guys can have a seat. So, so this is the first trap. Trap number one, the question of allegiance. Now, now, when you really dive into this thing, this is actually a really ingenious plan that they've come up with to, to trap him because they, 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 they really feel like they've asked the perfect question because no matter which way he answers, they think they've got him. It's a no-win situation in, in their eyes. Uh, their, their plan here was to use the Romans, and specifically Pilate, who was, happened to be in Jerusalem at this time for Passover, 
They wanted to use Pilate to execute Jesus. Now, just to kind of refresh your memory, the Jewish people for, for, for their whole lives and for generations have been expecting this Messiah to come based on Old Testament prophecies, but they expect him to come set up this, this earthly kingdom to kind of kick out the Roman occupation, you know, and set up his kingdom here on earth. So in this case, the true Messiah would have to be opposed to the Romans. He would, he would have to see the Romans as idolatrous, blasphemous, like pagan intruders. And they're thinking that in order for Jesus to keep on pretending he's the Messiah, he's going to be forced to say that the Romans had to be opposed, right? So all they had to do was kind of maneuver him into this situation where Jesus had to say that out loud, and then they've got him. Then he would be arrested. He'd be labeled as a revolutionary, and he would be executed. But if he said, yes, pay your taxes, again, in their thinking, he would lose the hearts of the people because the people were expecting him to overthrow this government, right? So, so to tell them to support this government financially just, just wouldn't make sense. And if he were to tell them, yeah, obey Caesar at every turn, he would be uh, guilty of blasphemy because he'd be suggesting that the people of God should worship Caesar. It's, he'd be giving his blessing to this corrupt, corrupt government this Roman occupation. So, so the choice as they see it is that Jesus will either lose his favor or lose his life. But, of course, as always, they underestimate the Son of God, right? He sees right through it. And he tells them, show me a Roman coin. And he asks them who, whose picture is on it. So, so he asked for what's, what's, what was known as a denarius. This is a silver coin that was minted uh, by the authority of the emperor. And it was equivalent to about a day's wage for a Roman soldier. And on the front, it would have Emperor Tiberius' face. And on the back, an imprint of him sitting on the throne. So, so he says, hand me this. Like he made them get one out of their pocket. Hand me a denarius, right? Whose image is on it? Then he said, well, then give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. This seems like a pretty simple answer. But once again, as Jesus always seems to do, it's just a profound statement that he's making. You know, several times throughout the New Testament, it said live at peace with the government, right? You're supposed, you're supposed to submit to authorities. Any authority known to man, God put them there, right? So, so Jesus is kind of making that point, right? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Like, look, look who's, whose image is on the coin. Like, you know how this works, right? Look who's in charge. So give back to Caesar what belongs to him. But that's not your only obligation. He's saying basically we have a, an earthly obligation, but we also have a heavenly obligation. Give to Caesar what Caesar's, but give to God what is owed to him. See, see there is one that doesn't just make coins. There is one true king that, that made us, and, and he stamped us with his image. And to him, we are supposed to give the thing that bears his image. That's, that's us. Some translations use the word render, like render to Caesar what is his. Render to God what is his. This comes from a Greek verb that refers to giving back something that is owed. So his pointer, yes, God's people are to fulfill their, their obligations, you know, materially to the human government, but also spiritually to God. We're to give to Caesar what is his. We're to give to God what belongs to him. Our hearts 
our minds, our strength. He deserves our very lives, right? Not just some momentary tribute. He shines the spotlight again where these guys are completely missing it. See, Caesar has a right to collect your tax, but God has a right to collect your worship. It's, it's owed to him. He's given the perfect answer. And once again, as it's happened over and over again, that they, they have nothing to say. They fall silent. They, they, they failed. And it says they were, they were amazed, right? But they're not done trying. They, they send in the next group of religious leaders, the Sadducees, in verse 27. Then Jesus was approached by some Sadducees, religious leaders who say there is no resurrection from the dead. They pose this question, teacher, Moses gave us a law that if a man dies, leaving a wife but no children, his brother should marry the widow and have a child who will carry on the brother's name. Well, suppose there were seven brothers. The oldest one married and then died without children. So the second brother married the widow, but he also died. Then the third brother married her. This continues with all seven of them who died without children. Finally, the woman also died. So tell us. Whose wife will she be in the, the resurrection? For all seven were married to her. So this is trap number two, the question of resurrection. Now, the Sadducees, they're not mentioned a whole lot, very, very seldom. They're, they're a, a much smaller group than the Pharisees, and uh, they only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, so, so the Torah, Moses' books, as they call them. They don't believe in miracles, they don't believe in angels, they don't believe in spirits, and they, they certainly don't believe in the resurrection. And so there, there's lots of disagreements between this group and, and all the others, but again, they're united in their, their cause to get Jesus, so they're here trying to trap Jesus. Now, their, their question was designed to prove how ridiculous the whole concept of the resurrection is, which to me seems like super off topic, right? Like if you're following the narrative, they're trying to trap him in these different ways, and all of a sudden the Sadducees bring up this thing out of the blue just to kind of prove one of their points. I mean, it has nothing to do with anything. It'd be like fighting with your wife about money or something, and out of nowhere she says, yeah, well, you're ugly and you have mom issues, okay? And you're like, I don't even know what, like, at this point, I think you're trying to hurt my feelings, you know? It's like, well, what are they talking about? Well, they're using the, the law of leveret marriage. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 25. And it does say, if a woman's husband dies before she has any kids, his unmarried brother has a, a duty to marry her to carry on the family name. Okay, so, so this is, this is their, their example. You have one brother that marries this woman, but then he dies. Next brother up, dies. Next one, dies. And if you're like me, you're thinking, uh, she's killing these dudes, right? <laughs> I mean, am I the only one that sees... I think I saw a Dateline episode that said that exact same thing. I mean, after the third brother died, if I was the fourth brother, I'm thinking, I think I'm called the singleness, you know? Uh, no thank you. So, so they get this ridiculous scenario to try to make Jesus look stupid, but I don't think it's going to go quite that way. So verse 34, what does Jesus say? He says, marriage is for people here on earth, but in the age to come, those worthy of being raised from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they will never die again. In this respect, they will be like angels. They're the children of God and children of the resurrection. But now, as to whether the dead will be raised, even Moses proved this when he wrote about the, the burning bush. Long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, he referred uh, to the Lord as the God of Abraham, 
the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he is the God of the living, not the dead, for they are all alive to him. So Jesus starts by saying, first of all, that the premise of your question is, is extremely flawed, right? Because there is no marriage in the, in the next life. They'll be like angels. Now, let's pause for a second. He didn't say they are angels, right? Jesus isn't saying that we become angels when we die. How many times have you heard this said, maybe at a funeral or something like, well, they've got their wings now, or, or now, now they're angels. Uh, this is not the case, okay? We don't become angels when we die. What he's saying is we will be like angels in that we won't die. Since we won't die, we don't need to repopulate, uh, procreate, right? So the, there's no need for marriage in the life to come. So that's your answer, okay? If you're wondering, you won't be married in heaven. Now, some of you hear that and you're like me, and my wife is here and she's amazing, and that makes me a little bit sad because my wife is awesome, right? Others of you <laughs> look like you just won the lottery, okay? No matter where you fall, Either side, heaven is, is going to be, however, however awesome your marriage is, heaven is going to be even better. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to address their, their disbelief in the resurrection. So he dealt with one problem. Now he's dealing with the other problem. And again, he does it in a brilliant way. He uses their guy, Moses, from one of their books, Exodus chapter 3, to prove they're wrong. And he does it in a very, very simple way. He uses a, a, a verb tense because God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not, not was. So if God can still claim a relationship with these, these men, there, there must be life after death, it, it, this, this future resurrection. And they are completely stumped again. And what do they say in verse 39? Man, I love this. Well said, teacher, remarked some of the teachers of the religious law who were standing there. And then no one dared ask him any more questions. Like, they're, they're not going to go there again because he keeps destroying these guys, completely shut them down. So, 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 so they're down. They're, they're, they're on the mat, but Jesus isn't done. Like, he, he doesn't let up. He doesn't let them up. He, he knows their questions are over, so he decides to ask his own question. In verse 41, then Jesus presented them with a the question. Why is it, he asked, that the Messiah is said to be the son of David? For David himself wrote in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. Since David called the Messiah Lord, how can the Messiah be his son? Now, again, the, the theme of the day, he, he's talking about authority here. He, he's, he's kind of been asserting it. He's been trying to show them where his authority comes from, and he, he's driving it home here. See, the son of David, that's one of the most uh, used terms for the Messiah in all of, of Scripture. And he also quotes the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, Psalm 110. This particular psalm of David is either quoted or alluded to 18 different times in the New Testament. Now, this, this question may not seem all that difficult to us in Western culture, but to his audience, to Jesus' audience, the contemporaries of his day, this would have been a baffling thing because they operated under the belief that the father is always greater than the son, and the grandfather is always greater than the father and the grandson. This is a, a, a Semitic belief that 
that they were just raised with, like it was, it was rooted in who they were. And, and that's how amazing would that be for you to be able to say to your, your kids, like, I'm automatically better than you, right? So just keep, keep that in mind if we, if we have disagreement. Like, every dad was better than the kid. They were greater. So it would have been unthinkable for a Jew to think that Isaac could be greater than Abraham since Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac depended on Abraham for his, his very existence. So, so you have David saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at the place of honor at my right hand. He, he's literally saying here in the original text, Yahweh said to Adonai. Both of those terms are used to describe God. The son of God is God the son. So the Messiah, God the son, is given the place of honor at God's right hand. What is he saying? He's saying, as both David's son and David's Lord, Jesus is both fully man and fully God. Jesus is Lord. Like he's spelling it out for them. I am the Messiah. I am who I claim to be. And then he absolutely (laughs) hammers these guys, hammers these guys He's talking to these religious leaders, and then he, it says he turns and says to his disciples, verse 45, beware of these teachers of religious law, for they like to parade around in flowing robes and love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces, and how they love the seats of honor in the synagogues and the head of table at banquets. Yet they shamelessly cheat widows out of their property, and then pretend to be pious by making long prayers in public. Because of this, they will be severely punished. Like Jesus said that out loud in front of the people that he's talking about. Like, can you imagine how awkward that situation was? Like these guys had to be absolutely infuriated and humiliating. He's proven that he's the one with authority, right? He is the prince. He is the the son of the king. And now he's making it clear that he is there to make things right. And he gives five different illustrations for uh, their hypocrisy. The first one, they like to walk around in fancy robes, okay? In Numbers 15, God instructed the Israelites to, to add these tassels to their robes to remind them of his commandments. Even Jesus on his cloak had, had tassels that he wore. But these guys, the scribes, the Pharisees, they lengthened their tassels to show how spiritual they were, right? How, how pious they were. I'm extra holy because my tassels are longer than yours. They also love respectful greetings. Like they didn't just love being greeted respectfully. They demanded it. They demanded that they be noticed and honored. One, one historian said it this way. It's more culpable to transgress the words of the scribes than those of the Torah. What he's saying there, it's worse for people. In those days, it was worse for people to disobey these religious leaders than it was to disobey the very word of God. And he went on to say, so weighty is the the, the duty of respectful salutation by the title rabbi that to neglect it would involve the heaviest punishment. So the the people were, were demanded that they show these guys respect They wanted the best seats in the synagogues and banquets that their whole life, 
revolved around being important and being around important people. And we've talked about it in previous parables that Jesus told how, how they, they, would, they would clamor to be this, the head of the, of the table, right? They wanted to be around influential people, be well-liked by everyone. He said they offered long prayers, not, not to call attention to God, but to, to get attention for themselves. Like even their prayers to God were about their own selfish ambition. That's why Jesus said when, when he taught us to pray, he said, don't be like the Pharisees who use a lot of words and who ramble on and on and on. They were doing it for the show. But the worst of it, the worst of all of it was their greed. Their greed led them to prey on the most defenseless members of society, in this case, widows. If you look at the original text, Jesus used the word devoured. They devoured widows' houses, which is illustrating for us. They, they had such an intense desire for wealth, right? And, and that, was, that was typical of false teachers in those days. They were all about the money, and they would cheat people any way they could. So, so not only did these scribes fail to, to care for widows and protect them as God had commanded them, they, they became some of their main exploiters. R.C. Sproul says this, there was a rule among the rabbis that the scribes were not allowed to receive financial remuneration or compensation for their teaching. And in order to get around these rules, they solicited donations. Often, however, they did it by taking advantage of the desperate plight of the widows. They would befriend them and then defraud them of their income. Jesus uses the word devour. They devour widows' houses for, and for show make lengthy prayers. These prayers that they gave on the, the behalf of the widows were in themselves nothing more than a camouflage of their real intentions, which was to separate the widows from their money. Jesus utters a dreadful warning. Such men will be punished most severely. So G Jesus here is, is rebuking these guys. And Luke records just, just a little part of it. We know there's three verses here for this rebuke. But in, in Matthew's account, he devotes all of Matthew 23 to this rebuke that Jesus gives to these guys. You should check it out. It's, it's, it's wild. I mean, over and over, he says, what sorrow awaits you, teachers of the law. Over and over, he calls them hypocrites. I mean, he lets them have it. This is the rebuke. The old corrupt system is condemned. You see, the, the prince, the authoritative son of the king is, is, is on the scene. And he is absolutely appalled by the injustice and the corruption that he sees. He's come to make things right. He's come to, to give these wicked stepsisters what's coming to them. And then he, he, his attention is drawn somewhere. Like something catches his attention that, that moves him. And he uses this moment and he uses this woman to, to show us, to show them what true devotion looks like. In, in chapter 21, verse 1, it says, while Jesus was in the temple, he watched the rich people dropping their gifts in the collection box. Then a poor widow came by and dropped in two small coins. I tell you the truth, Jesus said, this poor widow has given more than all the rest of them, for they have given a, a tiny part of their surplus, but she, poor as she is, has given everything she has. 
in the temple, there were about 13 of these, these trumpet shaped containers where people would come and make their donations, you know, to, to support the poor in the area and to, to support the temple expenses. But, but see this, there's lots of people giving, but this one widow moves Jesus heart. She gave, she, she gave everything. It says she gave two coins, right? These were two copper coins, which happened to be like the lowest denomination available in her time, like pennies for us. It was also the minimum that the temple would allow someone to give. So, so looking from the outside, she's doing the very least that she could, right? But, but Jesus sees, she know, he, he knows her heart and he knows that she's giving everything that she had and it moves him. And he points to her, you know, after all this rebuke of these religious leaders and the condemnation of the, the structure that, that they've built and all of this corruption and it, the, the evil that was seemingly unchecked, he, he points to her and he says, that is what it's all about. Like, that's what we're, that's what we're after. Forget this corrupt religious system, like be like that. And he exalts Cinderella. This is what true devotion looks like. This is what true godliness looks like. This is what righteousness looks like. Like you, you've been getting it all wrong. See, culture in those days said that wealth equaled righteousness. Like if you had money, people assumed, oh, God's with them. Like he, he blessed them. They must be doing something right. And if you were poor, it was the opposite. And Jesus says, no, 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 you've gotten it all wrong. He, he, he flips it. He says, that's no longer the case. You see, exaltation, his exaltation of this widow, he's saying the widow is the goal. And now this woman that we will never know her name, she's been the model of devotion for the past 2,000 plus years. Why? Because she gave it all. <laughs> and Jesus is saying, that's what it means to love God. It's not about religious duty. He looks at your heart. Daryl Bach says, in contrast to the scribes, pride and hypocrisy, stands this woman who has sacrificed out of her life to honor God. So Jesus says, beware of the scribes, but follow this widow. When God measures the life of service, he does not just count, he weighs. See the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the teachers of the law, they're, they're idolaters because they're, they're worshiping something other than the one true God. They're, they're obsessed with themselves. They're obsessed with the praise from people. They don't live for the glory of God. The widow, on the other hand, gives God the glory. No one else knows what she's done, but she's given God everything in proving that her life is about him. Her story is about his story. This is what I want us to, to see here today. God has written himself into his story. C.S. Lewis wrote one time that if there is a God, we certainly don't relate to him as people on the first floor would relate to someone on the, the second floor. He says, no, we relate to him the way Hamlet relates to Shakespeare. We, the characters, 
in God's story might be able to know quite a bit about God, the playwright, but only to the degree that the author chooses to put information about himself into the play. So Hamlet could only know Shakespeare if Shakespeare wrote himself into the story. And we can only know God because God chose to write himself into his story in Jesus. Why did he do that? So that we might know him. We might know his ways. We might know his will. We might know his heart. But we are just characters in his story. He is the author. That was one of the points from last weekend. Like the author is the authority. God is the author. It is his authority. We are part of his story, not our own. That's what our lives are supposed to be about. But we think we want to write our own story. God's written his story and his story is about him and his glory, not you, not your glory, not your success, not your, your best life, not your true self. See, see the, the religious leaders are, are trying to trap Jesus because they want to they hang on to their standing. They want to hang on to their, their power. They're living for their story. But then you have the widow radically giving of herself because she is living for something bigger than her. Are you living for your story or for his? How do you know? One way you know is you, you look at your actions, you look at your life, you look at the fruit of your life, you look at your, your motives even. Whose story are you living for? See, see, just like these religious elites, some of us are so wrapped up in our own story that we've missed the story. I, I think God would challenge us today to live for his story, live for God's story, live for a story bigger than you. Are you, you know, the Pharisee or are you the widow? Clayton asked last week, are you the tenant farmer or the wicked farmer? I ask a similar question. Are you the Pharisee or the widow? Maybe you're somewhere in between. Like, which way are you leaning? What's, what's keeping you from being like the widow? What's keeping your heart from being like the widow's heart? Do you live for him and his kingdom or do you live for yourself? Do you live for his glory or do you live for the praise of men? Jesus exalts the widow. The prince exalts Cinderella. He makes things right. He makes things right where it seems like evil is prevailing. And now, if you look around us in our world today, we, we kind of find ourselves here again, like we're living in an evil world that is absolutely running from God. And if you're like me, we think to ourselves, like, how long can this go on? Like, something has to change, right? Like, how much further can, can, can we go? And we find ourselves feeling like evil is winning, but knowing that we have the hope of knowing that the prince, the authoritative prince, the son of God is, is coming back to make things right. He's coming back to, to renounce, to judge the wicked and to exalt the Cinderella, the widow those who choose in this life to humble themselves before a mighty God. 
and bow to the king. He's coming back soon. <laughs> Which side will you be on? Would you bow your heads with me just for a second? And I want to invite you. I mean, it's easy, it's easy in these moments to kind of let, let the moment pass you by. You're thinking about other stuff, distracted. I want to encourage you just to fight that off and, and just be in the moment and ask God, God, search my heart. Like David prayed, God, search me and know me in the innermost place, all the way down to the core of who you are. Are you giving your all? Is your life about his story or yours? How would God answer that question about you? Do you, do you know God? Do you have a relationship with him? Maybe, maybe he's calling you today to, to give your life to Jesus for the first time. And you might have played the religious game, you might have played church or whatever, but you know that you know that you know at the core of who you are, that you don't have a personal daily relationship with Jesus. That's your next step. That's what he's, he's calling you to, to, to put your faith in Jesus, not in yourself, not in your hope one day to, to stand before God and, and hope that the good that you've done is enough. No, knowing that it's not enough, that your, your sin separates you from God and knowing that Jesus came to the earth to pay that fine for you. So all you have to do, again, in this, in this moment is just make a decision to put your faith in Jesus. Say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I want a relationship with you. I know that Jesus died to pay my fine and I accept that gift of salvation that you're offering me. God, I want, I want a relationship with you and I want to make Jesus the prince, the authoritative prince, the son of the king. I want him to be Lord of my life. If you're making that decision, I'd encourage you to check on the connection card in front of you. You're committing your life to Jesus and bring it to the welcome center. We'd love to talk to you. But what's he saying for the rest of us? There's so many of us that fall into this category of just like a casual church attender, right? Maybe God's calling you to more. Maybe, maybe he's, you've got this thing in you where you're sick of the way things have been and, and you, you, you know it's time to start walking the walk, not just talking the talk. He's calling you to, to greater levels of commitment, not just to our church. We're talking to God himself, to, to the faith, to walking with him. Last year in Project One, we, we talked a lot about giving our all, like to give our first and our best. And we are literally sitting in the fruits of your sacrifice. What's he asking of you now? Maybe it's to get into a, to a group, to surround yourself, maybe for the first time in your life with friends that point you towards Jesus, that you can do life together with and follow Jesus with. Maybe he's calling you to, to serve in, in, in greater capacity to what, whatever it is in this moment, just be open to what God is calling you to do. Father, I pray that 
when we take an honest look in the mirror, that we'd be willing to be honest with ourselves. We, we know we can't hide from you. So God, I pray that you would show us, is there, is there, am I truly surrendered to you? Is there something in me that I, I haven't laid down? Is there something that's holding me back? God, who, who among us are, are you calling kind of out of the, the shadows, off of the bench, uh, in from the fringes, into your story? God, we want our lives to be about something bigger than just us. Let everyone that knows us, God, see clearly that we live for your story and your glory. So God, show us how to respond. In your name, amen.